once again to the Global Gale podcast, my friends. My name is Philip O'Connor, coming to you from my little studio here in Stockholm, Sweden, where I've lived for the last good to 24 years now, and uh, broadcasting to the tiny little Irish community of about 70 million people around the globe. If you're Irish, if you're born in Irish, if you have Irish parents, if you have Irish heritage at all, this is the podcast for you, right? And every week I talk to somebody from our community, it could be anywhere in the world, and uh, I get them to tell me their story about what they're up to. The whole original premise of the podcast was that there's no such thing as an ordinary Irish person abroad. And week after week after week, we prove that and we find people with the most amazing stories stories. Now, I'm always one to tell you how the sausage is made, right? I have my little business up here, works as a freelance journalist and all sorts of stuff. I write and I film and I take pictures and I do podcasts and all sorts of stuff. And uh, it keeps me fairly busy. But one of the most important things that I do every week is I bring you this podcast. So the way it usually works is I'll reach out to a good few people at the same time. And then we'll try to decide a sort of a calendar, right? Now, there's a lad called Shane Monaghan. You will have heard me talk about Shane uh, earlier. He is the founder of an app called Lemore, right? A social audio app. And he's forever saying to me, Phil, would you do series, right? Just pick six people and do it and put it out. And then pick six people and do it and put it And I just, nah, I'm just going to do it every week. The idea of, you know, that level of planning and not having these spontaneous chats with people. So I go the other way, right? And I contact a whole bunch of people and I try to get a calendar together of them and it goes in waves because sometimes you get people and you might have Jesus there was one point there where I think I had two or three weeks worth of podcasts uh, you know fairly early on where I was just putting them out and that kind of thing you know and that's great because you know you don't have to worry about it and then you have weeks like this week boys and girls and I contacted loads of people and it really didn't work for anybody you know it was just ah uh, you know uh, somebody was doing something they said oh, can you talk to me at the end of June yeah no bother that's grand okay now on to the next person some people didn't answer people People are busy, there's nobody obliged to speak to me. And I was kind of resigned to the fact that I may not have a podcast for you at all this week. And I thought, well, that's okay, I'll just get one out as soon as possible. And then for some reason, the man you're going to hear from today popped into my head, right? And the man you're going to hear from today is an Irish footballer, a legend in the League of Ireland, named Brian Shelley, right? Now, Brian played for Drogheda United and he played for Bohemians, which is my favourite club in Ireland. And both of those clubs he played for uh, just as they were coming into sort of uh, financial difficulties, right? Few few problems paying the bills there. Not unusual in the game of football in Ireland back there uh, in the boom. We all partied, I think was what was said, and none partied more than Drogheda and they had problems paying the bills and Brian uh, had to leave. And the same thing happened then with my beloved Bohemians. And it left a bitter taste in the mouth, right? Because as you'll hear when I'm talking to Brian now, I think it's actually the very first thing we talk about. I met him at a tournament in Oslo for footballers, right? Now, this tournament is held every year and it's usually Ireland, Sweden, Finland and Norway, right? And they hold this tournament and the idea is it's a showcase for players who are out of contract, right? And at that stage, Brian was out of contract. He was one of the best defenders in the League of Ireland. Great right fullback, great centre-half. And yet he was over there, you know, in 2011, I think it was, basically, you know, playing and and looking for for a job somewhere, you know. 
And I would have thought a player of that quality wouldn't need to do that. I wouldn't thought that, you know, they'd need to play in these exhibition games or go on trial. But, you know, what do I know? And it was organised by FIFA Pro, the Players' Union, right? So much and all as I love the game of football, and I love Bohemian's Football Club, and I was very worried that they were going to go to the wall, in part because the old pe- uh, people like Brian Money. I can't get away from the fact that Brian, as a professional footballer, was another man selling his labour, right? He's a worker just like everybody else. And Bose had a contract with him for another year that they really should have, you know, been able to pay up. There's no point in sort of offering him just, you know, oh, sorry, we can't pay the bills. I think he was offered eight weeks in the end and he ended up taking it. But like eight weeks out of 54, when you sign a contract... If I do, you know, if I sign a contract with a media outlet and they say, right, you're going to write 10 articles, there's no point in then coming back to me and saying, oh, we'll, we'll pay you for two. You know, you want what's in your contract, right? So much at all as I love Bowes, I also very much respected Brian's right, uh, you know, to go and do what he had to do for his family and that. But what happened then was was kind of odd because, like, I thought, okay, he'll sign for somewhere in the League of Ireland or something like that. Not at all. Australia was the next thing and he's pretty much been there ever since and he fairly disappeared off the, the, my radar certainly you know and I really wanted to get in touch with him because I know he's done a few interviews and that kind of thing but I really wanted to get in touch with him just to talk about that time and how he came to be living in Australia he's now actually after a couple of years in Australia then he moved to New Zealand and that's really where he, he got set up and I wanted to get that story about playing football in different countries and the contractual things and all these other things that he was doing because it really is fascinating because as we're talking to you now actually I'm looking at the end of the playoff final which is Luton against Coventry City and end of the penalties right and these guys are earning thousands right they're going to be made for life after this you know a season in the Premier League and if you're smart about your money I know a fellow who used to play for Manchester United and he told me that uh, the day he signed for Manchester United was the day he became financially independent for the rest of his life and that was in the late 1990s so you can only imagine what it's like now with all the TV money right but the Bell Brian Shelley didn't have that opportunity or certainly didn't have that scale of financial opportunity so what he had to do instead was to go down and carve out a name for himself in the game down there and he's done absolutely brilliantly and it's been a, it was an absolute pleasure when he mailed me back right so he's in New Zealand I'm in Stockholm which is 10 hours behind and I mailed him on Friday evening, which was Saturday morning his time, which is usually when the Global Gale podcast comes out. And uh, he said, no, no, we'll do that. Like, you know, when you get up in the morning, it'll be even my time and we'll do the chat and that kind of thing. So now it's Saturday evening. I've been out, I've been busy all day working and what have you. And uh, now it's time to be sticking this podcast together. So about 24 hours later than it usually comes out, this is the Global Gale podcast. And this is the story of League of Ireland legend Brian Shelley and how the game of football took him all the way down on that. Brian, I've been trying to remember. I think the last time I saw you in person was in 2011 in a hall in Oslo in a freezing cold January. And you were there playing in a tournament uh, with a lot of other League of Ireland players. And the last place I expected you to go from there was to Australia. What was it that led you to leave the League of Ireland, leave the League of Ireland and go to the other side of the world to continue your career? Yeah, oh, look, great question. Um that was a crazy couple of years. Um, you know, I, I, I probably left home too soon in terms of where I was at in my playing career, but went through a couple of really bad experiences with football clubs. Um, I think the previous couple of years, obviously, I probably had my best years as a player at Drottery United. Um, you know, like two thousand and seven, I was I was voted best player in the country by by by, by my fellow players. Um. And then obviously the next year, 
that Drotter ran into financial difficulty. Um, and it was probably when I probably got my first, what I would call really rewarding contract. Um, and I ended up, you know, yeah, without going into the, 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 the details kind of, I, I ended up walking away from a three year contract there, um, because of, I had a good relationship with the people who were putting money into the club and, and, and they literally lost everything. So I decided to cut me losses and walk away, but obviously that had a massive impact on me and my family. Um, you know, we we you know we just bought a property at the time, and it it, it was it was tough, you know. But there was people going through worse. But I decided to to cut me losses. Then I went to Bowes, um, and had a couple of really good seasons at Bowes. We won the league, um, and then I had an option of another year on my agreement, which I wanted to take up, and <clears throat> basically. Overnight, we were told the club had no money, um, and not not a lot of people know the full details of actually what happened, um, because I think me and some of the other players were used as scapegoats around what was going on at the club, um, but the the the, the brief story around it is is basically I went in to meet the chairman of the club at the time at Bowers, and he offered me eight weeks money out of a potential fifty two weeks, mm. and. You know, I remember leaving there and speaking to the family and, and, and I just said, look, we've been through this before. Let's just take the eight weeks money. So I went back in and said, look, I'm happy to take the eight weeks money. Then I was told we can only give you the eight weeks money if all the other players agreed to eight weeks money. And some some of them players were on three year contracts. Some of them players were on a lot more money than me. So. I I I I just thought you know I'm not I'm not gonna accept this this time around so I I kind of made a stand in terms of and I I genuinely believe things have got better back home since then but I think players used to just accept uh, situations and um basically it got a bit messy then and there was court there was a court case and um. I think uh, John Delaney, actually, the FAI stepped in in the end. And actually, all I got in the end was me eight weeks money, which is all I wanted from the start. But, you know, my name got really tarnished around what happened. Um, and it was quite sad because, you know, I, I gave everything for all the clubs I played for. And, and, and you know, I had a really successful couple of years with Bowes. Um, but I think that the board at the time really hung us out to dry as players and, so I think it was a you know there was a couple of incidents where uh, after the balls thing I just thought look it's it's time that it's time to try something different try, try you know time to get away and and explore other opportunities overseas um and that and that's that's what we done you know I had offers to stay in Dublin you know Shamrock Rovers offered me a contract a pretty good one uh, I think it was Michael O'Neill was there at the time um. And you know, I, I, yeah, I, my, you know, me and the family's mind was made up that we were going to go and explore the rest of the world and and, and see what other opportunities were out there. Mm. When you get to to Oslo, because I remember there was yourself and I think Carl Moore who had been at Manchester City and actually wound up at Bowes eventually. That was a, like it's not really fair to describe it as a meat market, but there was a lot of people there, and a lot of people were talking to me about Brian Shelley there. Did you have a lot of opportunities from places other than Ireland and Australia, or did you just sort of say, okay, Australia, that's going to be warm, I'm having that? Yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't have heaps. Uh, I, I think the Oslo, the concept of going there when you were out of contract, was a brilliant idea. Um, 
you know, I, 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 when I was over there, I'd done okay. And, you know, I was 28, 29. I was still probably at the peak of my playing career. So I did feel I had a lot to offer. Um, you know, I heard whispers around, but, you know, basically what we done, what I done then, and it's probably done a bit different now. Um, but, you know, I got a highlight reel made up on a DVD and I basically sent that around the world. Um, it was around the same time as the Oslo um, opportunity, but, I had heaps of interest in terms of people wanting to be going trial. Um, but I have a daughter, I was married, I didn't want to go on trial, I was 29. And basically the that club in Australia where where the young were one of the, one of the few clubs that actually said, Well, here's what we can give you. We'll give you visas, we'll give you flights, we'll give you somewhere to live, we'll give you a car. Um and I I I really seen it as a ticket to to get out and to, to go and explore the other side of the world. So I, I, I went with the most concrete offer. Like I had, I had opportunities to trial in the A-League with a few teams. Um, I think there was someone in the States as well, a uh, little bit of interest in, in, in Scandinavia, but yeah, I was 29. I, you know, I, and I, I was let down with a couple of contracts. So I just thought I'll go with the most concrete one and get ourselves over to the other side of the world and then, and then see what opportunities are out there. Mm. Um, is it annoying when fellas or when clubs offer a fella like yourself a, like a trial you know you're 29 years old you've played for Carlisle you've played for the biggest clubs in Ireland you've won the league I think two or three times at that stage and a whole bunch of trophies like is it annoying when somebody says oh, I don't know man you're going to have to come in and train with us for a week or two weeks is that a sort of an insult to somebody like yourself at that time well yeah look, yes and no I, I I can see I can see where clubs were at because I think nowadays it would be very very difficult to get a contract based off a highlight reel um you know you can make very average footballers look really really good on a highlight reel so I think people you know they wouldn't go down the video route as much although it you know it would still play a part but yeah I guess I did think a little bit like that I thought look I'm 29 I'm, I'm at the achieving quite a lot in Ireland and you know I've, I'm, I'm, I feel as if I'm at the peak of my career at the time so yeah I wanted concrete offers you know yet you know I guess to answer your question I wasn't really prepared to go on trial um so yeah it's a shame but then I guess with them with them bigger clubs they've they've got more options so you know um but yeah look I don't I don't have a single regret about how it panned out um based just just purely because of the opportunities I've got since since I left Ireland. Mm. Um you were at Carlisle then you came back to Ireland at a time when Irish football or the League of Ireland was booming right there was all sorts of things about Joe Gamble at Cork City and and uh, George O'Callaghan I think it was and the fortunes they were earning and that kind of thing. And was it that good? Were you able to live uh, like as a professional footballer in Ireland without a part-time job? Were you able to get a mortgage and that? Or did you have to do other things on the side before you left Ireland? Yeah, look, I, I, to, to be honest, I, I, I kind of missed some of them years. And, and, and I was never, the, I was never a, a massive earner at any of the clubs I played at. Um, you know, I, I, I wasn't. Um, I guess... The first real big contract I got was at was at um Drotter because when I signed for Drotter I wasn't for a lot of money I had just been released from Carlisle, um I literally went back to work on a building site as a labourer for a plasterer and I was I remember taking a phone call from Paul Dillon I was on a building site, um and thinking you know here's an opportunity to get back in the game but you know Paul 
Uh, I, I had to sell myself to Paul, and Paul had a lot of doubts about bringing me to Drotter, but I'm glad he did. Um, he was he was amazing for me at that time in my career because um, he you know he ran a a, a professional program and um, he got me like really really fit, super fit, and and yeah, look, I probably played my best football at that club. Um, but I wasn't earning big money. And then, you know, after I kind of proved myself in 2007 and 2008, I actually got what I would consider a really decent contract for the League of Ireland. And then, you know, we 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 went and got some property on the back of that. Um, but that contract didn't last very long. It's so difficult because, you know, when you're in that situation as a footballer with a year, two years, there was a time when there was only 40-week contracts in the League of Ireland, so fellas wouldn't get paid for the off-season and that. And then even when you do get it, as happened with you in Drogheda and Bohemians, at the end of the day, if they don't have the money, Brian, it's not worth the paper it's written on, you know? What was it like then to arrive in Australia? Was that a different world? Because, like, when I spoke to the people there, I was, spoken to, um, I was talking to Stan Lazaridis there at the World Cup, and, uh, and it seems to be very well organised in Australia, even a little bit sort of further down, away from the A-League. Did you get that impression when you arrived over that, OK, these lads are serious and they're going to look after me here? Yeah, um, yes and no. Like I, I went to the lower leagues in 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 Australia, and and to be honest, um, it was a triggered reaction to go. I don't think I done enough homework. I don't think I researched the place, um, and and although what I'm gonna say now, like, was a little bit negative to me at the time, but it was I don't regret any of it. But yeah, I remember the first night I turned up at training in Ballarat, and um, you know there was we were getting changed in a container and we went outside and the grass was quite long. And, and, and I remember leaving the training session and ringing home thinking I've made a big mistake here. Like, you know, I'm going to come, I'm, I'm going to come back. This is not for me just because of, you know, without being disrespectful, the level was nowhere near what I was playing at. Um, but you know, the family said to me at the time, well, you know, give it a couple of months and, and see what happens. And, and and I did, and then you know, I've, from that point on, like I've I've had incredible opportunities on this side of the world. Um, you know, w- w- within a year of being at that club, I was I was um, you know, I was made player head coach. Um, I had a really good mentor who came into the club. Who was it was a very very um good operator who who was you know a coach developer who who you know he delivers your way for pro licenses. Um and he kind of took me under my wing for the first couple of years in terms of um you know supporting me as a head coach because at the time I was just a player, you know, I was 29. I think, well, I'm not a coach, I'm not I'm not ready to step into that. But look, once I did, um it was incredible the opportunities that I've had and 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 we actually done some really good stuff with that club. Um you know, all of a sudden I'm involved in player recruitment, um, you know, putting curriculums together for training and 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 implementing um, you know, I was full time at the club. Uh, I, I was a player, but I was basically a, a, a development officer for the club. Um so it was incredible. But yeah, initially when I got there, what it, it wasn't that incredible, you know. I thought, you know, maybe maybe I've I've jumped the gun here and left home too soon and 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 come to an environment that I probably shouldn't be in. But but yeah, that that changed pretty quickly within twelve months. Did your wife and daughter stay at home in Ireland to begin with, and you just go and test the waters, and they followed you out, or did they come with you straight away? Yeah, no, I went I went alone. Um, 
myself and a good friend of mine, Stephen Gray, um, we, 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 yeah, we basically flew, flew to Melbourne together. Um, yeah, that was, yeah, that was so tough that day. I, I, I still remember it. Don't remember a lot about about certain situations, but I remember going to the airport that day on a, on a one way ticket to to Melbourne, thinking, like, what am I doing? This is this is crazy. And the family was staying behind for six months. Um, but yeah, I wanted to go out there and make sure it was, you know, it was good for the family, organize skills, um, just basically get us set up. Um, but that was hard. Yeah, really, really hard. But, but, um, a great experience. What was it like when your wife did come out? Because you know the way sometimes you're there, you're sort of the advanced party. You learn everything about the place, where the supermarket is and where to go to eat and that kind of thing. And then she comes out and it's all new and you have your own sort of, you know, impression of it. Was it difficult for her and for your daughter? Your daughter was very young at the time, but was it difficult for them to settle in or did it help that you've been there already for six months? Yeah, it does help. I think my daughter was about eight when they came, but like... Yeah, I've I've obviously got the wife and my daughter Emma, but like they're just they've been incredible in terms of like they've literally followed me around the world in terms of my what I've done for a living and and never complained. Um they just kind of settled into wherever we were. Um so I've been pretty blessed that way. We've never we you know we never had any major issues. I think in terms of my daughter leaving at that age is was a good age. You know, I think if she's a little bit older and she has a, a bigger network of friends and the family, I think it's a lot, lot tougher for people bringing kind of maybe slightly older kids or slightly younger. So I think, I think that worked well. And look, we we were in we were in a place outside Melbourne called Ballarat. Like it, it was it was it was a good town. You know, it was it was it had it had a lot of positives to it. So yeah, we we kind of settled in. Um, we kind of settled in, but deep down, I probably knew like this is not where we need to be, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. Was there a big Irish community out there? Like, because like, I'm always astounded that when I'm on Twitter and that kind of thing, and you tweet about the League of Ireland and you get fellas from who are living in Sydney and Perth and that kind of thing, tweeting back at you about Cork City and Bowes and Shamrock Rovers. Like, did you get a load of people who knew who Brian Shelley was coming up to you after games? Or was there any tricolours in the stand where you were playing down there with locals coming to see you? Uh, yeah, well, look a little bit. The, the Irish community is massive all over the world, as you probably know. Um, you know, there's there's parts of Melbourne where you'd probably only meet Irish people. You know, down in St Kilda, uh, same if you go to Sydney. There's 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 so many parts where there's just the Irish have kind of taken over to a degree. Um, but that that's like you take massive comfort in that when 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 you're on the other side of the world because you know we all miss home and we all go through the same things and, um. So yes, yeah. Look, some people, some people would have known on me, known of me. Others, others, others wouldn't have a clue, um, because it's so far away. Um. So yeah, I guess you gotta, you gotta, you gotta rebuild what you've been doing, and um, you know, you gotta perform at a good level, um, to kind of, to kind of show people, you, you know, it was, it was, it was good of them to bring you to where you are. It's worth that investment bringing you over there and that kind of thing. But of course, you didn't actually stay that long in Australia. Um, you moved to New Zealand after a few years there. Were you offered like you know, was it a new club that came in that wanted you as a player, as a coach? What was the opportunity that brought you to New Zealand? Yeah, like it wasn't really on the horizon. Um, I guess um the the guy who kind of mentored me a little bit in Ballarat had good connections in New Zealand and. 
it kind of happened really quickly where the, the, there was a national league here at the time, which it, it's kind of slightly different now. It's a little bit more regionalized before it becomes a national league. But at the time, there was a national league in Waitak in, in New Zealand. Um, and there was a club called Waitakere United in, in Auckland. Um, but basically, you would fly all around the country to 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 to, to play in the league. Um, so yeah, their coach came over to watch me in a game for Ballarat. Um, had dinner with him that afternoon, and you know he said, "Look, we we'd like to take you to the club." Um, an amateur club, but um, you know they they had created a role for me uh, within the club. Um, and they 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 organised some external stuff for me to do as well. Um and yeah, I flew over there for a weekend. Um and I just remember landing into Auckland and I remember um you know driving down through Auckland along Mission Bay where the ocean is and I just thought this like I need to get the family here. Um this 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 you know it just had an amazing feel to it. Uh the, the the standard of the football was good. Like, you know, I wasn't nowhere near League of Ireland good, but it was it was it was good. There was some you know some good players there. Um, some players that that have went on and done really well. Some players who played in the UK. So I had more of a feel to it for me that this is, you know, this is this is, you know, I'll enjoy this more. And I knew by looking at Auckland that the family would absolutely love it. Mm. Um, and there was a player slash, uh, assistant coach role. Um, the coaching role wasn't really much to be honest. It was more of a playing role. Um. So yeah, I kinda I, I kinda sold it to the family and we jumped at that opportunity. What did your wife say when you come back to, to like Melbourne <laughs> or, or thereabouts and go, oh, look at I've after seeing this place and go, oh Jesus, not this again, kind of thing. You know, was she happy enough for you know just because my wife is a say she's a very patient woman, but it takes an awful lot to move countries and the number of times that Jews have, like. Yeah, no, I agree. I'm sure in the back of my mind she was thinking, here we go again, you know, where where are we going next? Um but yeah, I you know I I sold the price pretty well, um, and we researched up Auckland and um, it's a it's a beautiful place, it really is. And and uh, what struck me when I got here was just the amount of opportunities because we were in a small town, mm. and then we shifted to Auckland where it's such a big place and there was so many football opportunities from what I could see. And by this stage, when I got to Auckland, I had a real eye on coaching. Like I'd been coaching for a long time, you know, myself and Glenn Cronin and on here, he'd done a lot of coaching around bowls uh, in Cabaret and stuff. Um, so I was always leaning towards that. Um, you know, I had my UA for B done before I got to Auckland. Um, and I had a real, you know, a real passion for it by this stage. So in the back of my mind, I was thinking, you know, there could be some real good coaching opportunities here for me because I really want to start transitioning from being a player um, and that was a big drive as well um, so that that kind of sealed the deal that we, we would all go there and even for my wife there was you know way more opportunities for her here also mm. um, Did it turn out the way you expected it to with coaching because I know that that was something that you really wanted as you got later on into your career you started to take it more and more seriously like did it turn out that way because sometimes you go there and it turns out not to be the promised land like yeah, no, it did. It did. And I genuinely feel I'm lucky in terms of the opportunities I've had. Like within within 12 months of landing in Auckland, I was head of football at the biggest college in New Zealand. So there was there's over two and a half thousand students there. Um 
and I probably wasn't equipped for the role, but I ended up in the role. And, you know, I, I've done that my whole career. I'm a big believer in if an opportunity comes up to throw yourself in at the deep end, particularly with coaching. I was never safe around opportunities that I picked. I got in there and I was learning on the job. Um, you know, you know, all of a sudden you're structuring a program with, with 20 plus teams and you're coaching the top team and, um, you know, even going back a stage at Waitakere United, I ended up being co-head coach and head coach of a national league team there while I was still playing. And, you know, I made heaps of mistakes at the beginning, like so many mistakes. But but for me, without going through them experiences, you can't develop as a coach. Um, And I think now where I sit now and the role I'm in now, and, um, you know, them, them experiences are, are invaluable. To, to, to you as a coach um, but you have to be willing to do them um, so yeah I feel lucky in terms of what, what you know I've basically been working in the game in New Zealand full time for the last 10 years um, you know which is which is not easy to do in New Zealand because of a couple of reasons one is there's not that many full time roles in football you would you would meet a lot of people who are combining roles to make a salary um, so I think to have kept me hand in there, you know, I'm obviously doing something right and um, I've made the best of the opportunities that have come my way, really. Uh, when you say, you know, people come by in roles and make a salary and that kind of thing, right? Is this one of those things where you're still involved in football, but you could be making better money elsewhere or have you a fairly decent job that you're happy with? Because an awful lot of time in football, you have people who are doing one thing, but they're looking to the next opportunity. Oh, when I get my next contract, that's where I'll make the big yeah. money. And, you know, and then eventually they slide out of the game without ever having reached that. So are you happy with where you are and with what you're getting for what you're doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm really content with where I'm at. Like, you know, I'm always trying to better myself, don't get me wrong, but I'm not actively looking to 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 move anywhere. I think I think as as coaches and as people, we all fall into making that mistake is that the grass is always greener somewhere else and you're you you're chasing the dream and then you're not actually invested in what you're doing. So I've done so much in the last ten years, like in terms of outside of football, you know, like I went into a a director of sport role at a college, which I'd done for two years, which was amazing because all of a sudden, you know, I, I probably had 20 different sports that fell under my responsibility. Um, you know, a, a really good friend of mine here had his own IT company. You know, I'd done, I'd done bits with him as a business development manager. And all of a sudden, you, you know, because football is a bubble and, 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 and I lived in that bubble in Ireland my whole life. Um, well, it's great, you know, it doesn't give you the, in my opinion, it doesn't give you the life skills you need to progress in, in, a, in a different industry. Um, so, you know, while I was here, I managed to do all that. Um, and, you know, the current role I'm in now, I mean, I think it's probably just over three years. Um, but I'm loving it. Yeah, loving it. I'm not, you know, I'm, 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 I'm happy. I'm trying to make the program better. Um. You know, I'm I'm kind of operating in that space in terms of player development, in terms of eight to seventeen year olds. You know, which I'm really really enjoying. Um, you know, and hopefully I'm helping them on their journey. Mm -hmm. 
you know, the, you mentioned earlier on that you had the UEFA B license when you were moving over and that kind of thing. That and yet, you know, you also said that you made many mistakes in the beginning. Is the formal education is it actually any use, right? In terms of you know, when you actually get a job as a director of football, as a coach of U teams or whatever, or is there an awful lot of learning that you just have to do by being on the sideline with your whistle in your hand? Hundred percent. Um Anyone can get a coaching qualification if you know, and and, and there's a number of barriers. So like, like I done my away for A license while I lived in New Zealand, so that that was two trips. I done it with the F English FA, so that was two trips back to St George's Park. Um, the whole process took about two and a half years. I had to get an assessor to come to New Zealand to assess me. There was a there was a couple of us doing it, so financially it's a huge burden. Um. So coaching badges in you know coaching badges are not accessible to everybody. They're just not. Um, you know, getting onto a pro license is an absolute minefield. Um, but having a UA for A license on this side of the world is valued by people. Um, and 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 it was a process that I loved going through because I was tested the whole way through it. But but you have to coach. You have to get on the grass. You have to coach as many different groups of people as you can. Um. And I, you know, I coach in the male space, the female space, um, youth players, junior players, adults. But it's exactly what you said. You know, you've got to, you've got to be willing to put yourself out there, and 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 that's, that's how you kind of, um, you know, hone your craft. I guess is 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 by is by actually doing it. You know, um, and I think you have to be willing to do that. You know, you you can see at the highest level, and you know. From the outside looking in, some people just jump into coaching jobs and they're probably not ready to do that. Mm. Um, you know, you you have to do your apprenticeship, I guess, to a certain degree. Yeah, uh, but is that about Frank Lampard? Is it? <laughs> <He's been laughs> poor old Frank, as we're talking, is not having the best of times with you know. Um, I was yeah. going to ask you there about that, like you know, uh, when you have those coaching badges, and that often when you go to do the sort of more advanced ones, you go back to England to do the UEFA A license, and there will be people like Lampard on that course. Is there anybody on your course who would have been sort of notable that you were working shoulder to shoulder with? Yeah, there was. There was a few. Uh, Darren Huckabee was on it. All right. Um, from Norwich and stuff. Um. A few people have went on to do really well from that course. There wasn't, you know, there was, yeah. There, I guess there was no massive, massive names. Although Darren Huckabee would have been, it would have, would have been a bigger, biggish name at the time. Yeah, he, he would was, have been at Coventry and Newcastle and that kind of thing. Didn't yeah, himself, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, there was twenty plus coaches on there, and you know, for me, a lot of them coaching courses depend on the candidates. Because you probably learn more when you're outside of the classroom, or you know you're socialising with these people, and um, they're telling you about their environments, and I think you pick up a lot of stuff if if you're surrounded by good people on them courses. Mm. Um, but yeah, it was a great experience, re- really good experience. Um, and 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 you know, very pleased I was able to I was able to do it because you know not a lot not a lot of people are. Mm. We have a Women's World Cup coming up in Australia and New Zealand now during the summer. The girls in green are there for the first time. Where is football in Australia and New Zealand now, right? Because for New Zealand, I remember them being in a World Cup, I think it was in 1982, and then they vanished, and then they sort of came back. And the women's team, are, are they're not bad, but they're obviously not in the very sort of top division with the, there with the Scandinavians and the US and China and these countries. So in your estimation, if you zoom out a little bit, where do you see football in New Zealand? Are we going to see a situation where male and female players are going to be coming to the Premier League and they're going to be coming to big European leagues or are they still sort of bubbling under that level? Yeah, oh look um, 
Yeah, good question. Um, and look, I, I can only talk about my experiences here. You know, I, I think the first thing you have to acknowledge is how isolated we are. Mm. You know, we, we are really isolated from the rest of the world. Um, but there is lots of players from New Zealand playing their trade in Europe. You know, the, the majority of the national squads, even the underage squads, a lot of them would be playing their trade overseas. Um. You know, I I think I think a big focus has to be put on the domestic game here and how how we can improve that. Like if you look at Ireland, which is you know kind of similar in terms of size, um, you know they're probably way ahead of where we are in terms of facilities and you know academies and and even though me and me and you would both probably say they're miles behind in terms of where they need to be at, and people in Ireland would say the same. But I think you know domestically you have to have a good product. Um, you have to have, you know, youth structures in place. You've got to have qualified, experienced coaches in place. Um, and you know, have a really good product here that the 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 players might develop and play in the national league here. And I think, you know, I think it's fair to say there's still a little bit of work to be done in that space in terms of the pathway to to the national league and what that looks like. Um, but there is people doing some good work here as well. Um. So yeah, look, it's a challenge. Um, it's a challenge, and yeah, look, I I probably don't have all the answers for that one. <laughs> mm. uh, is is rugby the be all and end all still there? You know, where soccer is something that's just like you know over there in the corner somewhere, but rugby dominates everything. Is that where you like the way when we were growing up in Dublin, the Gaelic footballers would have been everyone to play Gaelic football for Dublin or football for for Bows or Shells or for Pats or Rovers or whoever? You know, is that the, the what the situation looks like in New Zealand? Rugby's the number one sport. When I say the number one sport, I would say it's probably not the most played sport. So, you know, I'd, you'd probably have to look at these stats and, and don't quote me on them, but I'm pretty sure soccer, but I, I hate using the word soccer. I don't I don't call it soccer. I only use football. Even to me kids over here, I say it's football because it's the global game. That's what it's called. That's it. But... um. It's probably one of the most, if not the most, played game at junior level in New Zealand. But a lot of players filter out of sport, I think, as they get older and the real athletes would be lured into rugby um, because they have a hell of a product here. The All Blacks, you know, one of, one, you know, one of the best sporting organisations on, on, the, on the planet. Um, you know, there's good pathways in place um in terms of club and school and managing that. Um so it's it's definitely the most respected sport here. It's it's a little bit of a religion for Kiwis in terms of how the All Blacks are down and, and how rugby is down. And it's awesome to see that. You know, I, I guess from a football perspective, it's you know, we probably need to be thinking in New Zealand, well, how you know, how do we change the mindset around getting football on the map a little bit more at, at that kind of more of a, an elite level. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, you know, there's, there's, I've not met anyone in New Zealand who, who doesn't have rugby right up there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't think, I think it's probably illegal to say bad things about the All Blacks and that kind of thing, you know? What, well, have- the, the, the only good part about that, mate, was I, I was in Wellington when we won the test. <laughs> the only man with the tricolour in the stand there going nuts altogether, you know? Well, that, there was a few of us there, but we kept, we kept our heads down. Well, but you know what? The fact that Ireland have closed the gap in rugby, that's what gives you the belief maybe that New Zealand and Australia can start to compete again at this global level. Because like you say, you know, all you need is 11 really good players for a national team. I would say 15 or 16 really good players so that they can compete. 
when you have young players, young men, young women who come to you, because you've played all over the world, right? You've had a vast amount of experience. You've played against Yuri Jorkaev uh, when he played for Kaiserslautern and you were playing in Europe for, for Drogheda. You played against big teams for Bowes as well. Um, what what advice do you give them? What's the most important things do you think in, their, in terms of what they should focus on to develop and if they want to turn pro and have a career in the professional game? Yeah, look, I, th- I think it's a range of things, you know. I think, look, I think even going back to what you just mentioned there about, you know, eleven good players and, and being successful. I think, you know, and I know that's tongue in cheek, but it's. I think it's it's if if you want to have a country, you know, competing at the highest level of the game, you have to have a plan and 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 a country of people behind that plan, and 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 that's possible, but that takes time. It takes um you know the correct blueprint to follow. You know, you can look at other examples of, of countries like Belgium, um, who have key people um who've structured a plan that it's probably taken a 10-year movement to 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 get to get everyone on the same page and and, and then it's possible. But if your plan is disjointed and there's um there's not a clear philosophy for, for people to walk around, I think it's very, very difficult. Um but in terms of the players that come in that I come into contact with, um, you know, I've got a range of players. Um, you know, I'm at a college, they're students. Um, like first and foremost, you know, you know, my, my overriding philosophy at the school is 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 to create a fun, safe learning learning environment for them to develop in because I think ultimately my goal is when I when when I when students come into the school is that I want them to still be playing the game when they leave. Um, because I think that's huge. There's a lot of students that drop out of game because they have bad experiences with coaches, or you know, they 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 they, they just didn't like the environment. Um, so I think that's huge. You know, I think in terms of players going on to the next level, you're talking in you know what I've seen in my environment is you talk. It, it's less than one percent who 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 probably will have the opportunity to. You know, if we're talking about progress and leave New Zealand and go to Europe, so you know, with 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 them boys and 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 girls, there wouldn't there wouldn't be many. But I think there's a few different avenues now that are becoming more popular. One is the scholarship route to the states. Um, I really do think it's important that you experience life outside of New Zealand and you leave the bubble. Um, you know, if you're fortunate enough to be able to go to Europe for a football experience and and actually see what an academy looks like in Ireland or the UK and what it means for kids to be involved in that. I think that's life-changing for a young player in New Zealand to see that. And when they come back to New Zealand, and I've ex- I've experienced this, they're different people and different players when they come back because they've actually seen what is out there. Um, and I think that's really important to, to, to be able to do that if, if you're actually serious about um progressing. But I think it's quite hard here for young players to, to get them opportunities. Um. You know, the, the the longer you probably stay in New Zealand, the, the 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 more likelihood is you might end up staying in New Zealand, which is not a bad thing. But but there is a lot of players with hopes and dreams, twelve to eighteen year olds that come into my college and, and 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 you know going to Europe and is probably on their radar, which which is a good thing. You know, they need to have them ambitions, but it's a hell of a lot more difficult, I think, than people people realize. 
It sure is, especially from the other side of the world. Um, one of the experiences in the game that I'd like to ask you about, especially now that you're coaching, you're doing these things yourself, uh, you worked with one of the legends of Irish football and Roddy Collins at Carlisle. So I'm just going to have to ask you for your wildest yeah. Roddy Collins story from when you were playing football. And if you actually learned anything from Rod when you were under him there. Um, what, what, what a character. Like, and I, I honestly would, I speak very, very highly of Roddy if anyone ever asked me because Roddy is a huge reason that I became a professional footballer because um he he always gave me an opportunity when when some other people wouldn't and he believed in me from day one and um I probably didn't give him the respect he deserved at the time in terms of his coaching and management ability but like now when I reflect on it like the guy like I don't think anyone would, any player who ever played for Roddy would wouldn't pass him in the street without giving him a hug and saying hello. You know, I I actually fell out of contact with him um for quite a long time just because we were on the other side of the world and and I remember ringing him up probably a year or two ago, and the first thing he said to me on the phone was how was Emmett and Lisa. He was able to name them and he you know he he has that connection where he makes you part of his family when you're involved with him and he will back you. 100% until you piss them off and then then they're in trouble but yeah we we yeah look we had some great years in Carlisle and um, like I read his book recently you know I, I made a chapter of the book I remember which is a true story when he had a fist fight with Richie Foran in a hotel room in Cardiff um, and I remember I was hiding in the bathroom um, and during the fight he would look over at me and say you're next you know Um and, and I, I was, uh, yeah, I, I was shitting myself that night. But that's look, I was now surprised when he had a book out because he could probably write two books. I look at, I, I think there was actually half the stuff that when he was talking in the interviews about the book wasn't even in the book at all. And the, the yeah. book publisher was saying, well, "Can you stick to what's in the book so people buy it?" But he could, an absolutely brilliant character. And I do think, like you say, he was actually very much underrated when it came to motivating people because you know people like yourself would play it from would run through brick walls from. But he also knew the game, like you know he could make adjustments in the middle of a game. He could see things that could influence things, and you know picking on fullbacks who maybe weren't up to it and that kind of thing, you know. Um, Brian, yeah. I suppose if we're going to circle around towards the end, right? Have you any ambitions to do what Roddy did to come back to, to Ireland, to England? Do you feel this unfinished business there for Brian Shelley, or are you content with where you are now? Do you see your future and that of Emma and Lisa and the family being on the other side of the world still? Yeah, look, that's that's a real tough question because um, I, I consider Ireland my home. You know, I, I, I really do. I don't consider like I live here now and I've got a lot of friends here and the country's been amazing to me. Um but I do I probably do ultimately see myself back in Ireland at some stage. Um you know, thankfully the family can't hear this at the moment because they'll probably shoot me down. But um, you know, my daughter's in uni, um she's more Kiwi than Irish, really, probably. She's been away since she's eight, she's twenty. Um so for the next couple of years, we'll be here, you know, support Emma through uni. And then, you know, all of a sudden she might leave us anyway and she might want to do her own thing. But, but um, yeah, look, there would be a little itch there somewhere to go back and get involved at League, in League of Ireland, probably like give something back to the game there. And, you know, and, and I do feel like it add value to the Roy project, but it's not something that I'm itching to do right now. Um. 
but it could be something that I would look at, you know, like there's a lot of my generation now doing really well back there, you know, you know, two good friends, well, two two good people I know is Glenn Cronin and Stephen Bradley, um, doing an amazing job at Shamrock Rovers, um, you know, and there's there's other people who I probably shared a pitch with as a player who've who've done really well as well, you know, so. Yeah, I would, I, I would definitely consider it, but it's, it's probably not something I want to do tomorrow. You know, can you still follow the League of Ireland from there with this uh, league pass thing and that kind of thing? Do you still watch the games at all if you have the chance? I do, I do. I try to keep up the speed with it. There's a couple of apps that that keep me up to speed with it. I probably speak to um Glenn Cronin uh, every couple of weeks, uh, Stephen Gray. Um, so I do like to keep me hand in to see what's going on because. Yeah, look, I I spent the best spent the best part of ten years in that in that league, and I'd love to see it doing well. I'd love to see it getting better, which I genuinely think it is. Um, you know, like you look at Shamrock Rovers, look at the stadium, look at full house on a Friday night. You know, other other clubs probably just need to um keep pushing in terms of getting facilities up to that standard. But yeah, the league's given a lot to me, so I yeah I I I do try to stay up to touch, you know. What if some college in America got in touch and said, oh, Brian, we're hearing great things about you. Come over here and coach over here or or big money in China or Qatar, that kind of thing. Would that appeal to you at all? Or is it more about, you know, where home is going to be for yourself and for Lisa and Emma now? Yeah, it is. Like, yeah, I think the money thing is, you know, money thing is it's obviously it's obviously great to have it. But it's yeah, it's a bit more than that for me now. Um you know, I think America is probably the probably the first thing that I would think of with America is that it's ten hours closer to getting home. You know, <laughs> um, <laughs> at least you're not on the other side of the world anymore if you're over there, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, like the trip home from here. That's that's the downside of living in New Zealand. Like it's probably the biggest and and only downside is the distance between getting home to see a family. It's a once a year at best type of thing with the cost, and it's it, you know it's it's two days on a plane. It's it's just it's not good. <laughs> when you land in Dublin, are you in bits then for days afterwards? Like, are you all over the shop with jet lag and just worn out from the trip and that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, you do be, you do be, because normally we would we would go straight home. We wouldn't stop anywhere. So you know, I think we went we were home at Christmas and we we transited through San Francisco, but it's you know a couple of hours in the airport onto the next plane. And I don't like flying. I really, I just, I don't like flying at all. I'm not a good flyer. Um, but I know if I don't get on the flight, I'm not going to see the family. So you, you have to do it, you know. But it's, it's not, it's not something you want to be doing for the rest of your life. But that idea, of you're transiting through San Francisco. San Francisco's already. If I think of flying to the west coast of America from Europe, it's like Jesus, that's miles away. But that was only sort of the halfway point for you, you know. So it yeah. takes forever. Yeah. Brian, I'm delighted that you that you replied so quickly. I was devastated when you left Bowes and everything that happened there. <laughs> but, you know, I, I've forgiven you ever since. I fully understand. And I'm delighted to hear that you're doing so well there. And I look forward to seeing you maybe back in the League of Ireland. Maybe not this year or next year, but maybe in five years' time when the right yeah. project comes up. But thanks very much for talking to me. No problem, Phil. Thanks a lot, mate. Great to meet you. So we're going to go to uh, the Carlisle Grounds now, where uh, Bohemians are lifting the trophy for the second year in a row. The champagne corks have been popped. The celebrations can commence big time in Fibsborough later on tonight. There you go, my good friend Con Murphy from RTE there, way back in 2009 when 
Brian Shelley was winning the league with Bohemians Football Club there on the north side of Dublin. Uh, they were away in Bray that night over at the Carlisle grounds and I think um, Con and the lads may have been at Richmond Park there. I don't know who St. Patrick's Athletic would have been playing that night, maybe it was Shamrock Rovers. But um, now, I can't confirm, you would have thought maybe at the end of the league season that Con would be a little bit excited, but there are rumours that he may support Shamrock Rovers. So, but I couldn't possibly comment on that, lads. That would not be fair. Right, we're nearly done for this week, but I would like to remind you that this is a community-supported podcast. It only exists because you do. So if you can support it that would be brilliant patreon.com forward slash our man in stockholm or if you happen to have sold a company for several billion and you'd like to you know throw a few grand into supporting this podcast philip at ablana.se will get you to me and that kind of thing i'll be more than happy for your support but the more people we can get on patreon.com forward slash our man in stockholm the more i'll be able to bring these uh, podcasts and concentrate and getting people uh, lined up before sort of late friday night early saturday morning when this is supposed to be coming out um so that's it for this week i'll be back again with another episode next week if half of these people get back to me there might be five episodes next week you never know but in the meantime look after yourselves look after one another and i'll be back again soon with another episode of the global gale podcast good luck